Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Hashtag RealPod. I'm your host, Victoria Garrick, and this episode is about to completely change the way you think about food. Joining me is New York Times bestselling author and nationally renowned food and body image guru and life coach, Janine Roth. Janine has written 10 books about compulsive eating, anorexia, and perpetual dieting. She's appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show, Oprah's podcast, Super Soul Sunday, The View, The Today Show, and Good Morning America, because this woman has seriously cracked the code on food and dieting. She is sharing all of that with us today on this episode of Hashtag Real Pod. I can personally say that Janine changed my life. I remember my freshman year of college, I had been dieting and restricting and counting calories for so many years that that finally caught up to me. All the stress of school and, and practice and life, I started binge eating in secrecy and I would be eating way more food than I should have been and then I would feel guilty about it and I would restrict the next day and it was just this really toxic, shameful cycle. And my mom one day brought me Janine's book and I read it in one sitting. It was amazing. I felt like everything was so relatable and it was written for me. And since then, I I swear, like since that moment and reading that book, my life has been completely different. It's taken work. It's taken ups and downs, but I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't read this woman's book. I am beyond honored to have her on the podcast. I was over the moon when I realized I would be able to interview her for this podcast at all. She's amazing. And I hope you guys really soak up this interview and get as much out of it as I'm hoping you will. With that said, let's just get right to it because I'm dying for you guys to hear this. Well, thank you for inviting me into your lovely home. I would have never imagined I'd be sitting across from you face to face because to give you a little bit about me, about three years ago, I went to college. I was battling with emotional eating, stress eating, binging as a result of so many things going on in my life, hating the way my body looked. And my mom, I told her about a binge I had, which was so hard for me to do. I called her crying and said I just ate everything in sight and I couldn't stop myself. And she gave me your book. And I read it in probably four or five hours because I just could not stop reading because it was so relatable and I felt like Mm. it was written for me. And that was my moment that forever changed the way I, I had viewed food and my relationship with food. So thank you. Thank you for that. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. And I've 
preach it. I, anyone who has an issue with food, I'm like, you have to read a Janine Roth book. Like this is a game changer. Um, breaking free from emotional eating specifically, but also women, food and God has been amazing and so helpful. And I don't think young women are taught how to have a relationship with food. We just kind of develop our own ways of eating and approaching dieting that isn't always healthy and has all these underlying factors that you write about in your book. So I guess where I want to start with you is my favorite phrase from Women, Food, and God was our relationship with food is an exact microcosm of our relationship to life itself. How would you explain that to a 17, 18 year old girl who doesn't really understand the power that food is having on her life? I would say it's not just about food, but it's also about judgments, about body size, and that at 17 years old, so much is going on, so many changes are happening. And I remember when I was 17 and my body was foremost up there, the size of my body and therefore my relationship with food, what I was putting in my mouth, how it was affecting the size of my thighs, my arms, my face. And whatever was going on for me, all the many factors, relationship, parental stuff, friends, school, all got funneled into my relationship with food and my body. So I would say that that's the first thing to know, that it, it's sort of like um, you have a, a, blank, a b- blank canvas, and whatever going on in your life, you throw onto your relationship with food, and, your, and therefore the size of your body, or you, the size of your body, and therefore your relationship with food, since those things are really related to each other. So you can't really separate what's going on in your life with what's going on with your feelings and judgments and opinions and interpretations about the size of your body and what you eat. They're the same thing. There's no difference between those things. Right. And yet it seems like so many women have an issue or a toxic cycle with food. 80% of women are disordered eaters. What do you think it is that triggers so many women to go into that cycle of dieting, binging, wanting to be perfect? Does it have to do with relationships growing up, comments when we're young? I'd love to know what you think about social media these days. I think it's um, it's multi-layered. I don't think it's one thing. I think we're growing up in a culture with social media where we end up comparing ourselves with somebody's finished. And I know the new thing now is unfinished black and white Instagram photos. My my nephew is completely into Instagram and style and being an Instagram influencer. And so he's always telling me about the newest thing and the newest thing is unretouched photos. But for a while it was comparing what we look and feel like in the moment with somebody else's perfect photo. And coming up really short. So that's, that, that is something that people do every single day by checking their social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, 
the 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 whole thing. Totally. I mean, we wake up looking at it. We go to sleep looking at it. It's impossible to escape. It's impossible to escape. But that was not something that you had growing up. So if you could briefly describe to me how you sort of found your calling and realized that there was a greater thing happening between yourself and food. How did you get to where you are specifically when you began? You know, I want to backtrack for one second and say that the culture that women and women's bodies sort of swim in is quite damaging, I would say, mm-hmm. to women. And uh, the attitude still, and of course it's becoming more and more outed in terms of the Me Too movement, in terms of women speaking up about harassment and the comments they get and the touches they get, but the attitude about women's bodies is quite damaging. And it started a a really long time ago. I'm reading a book now about the history of dieting that goes back 2,000 years. So it started 2,000 years ago. Because I think image and body is a direct, from society, it, it directly explains like, are you worthy? Are you good enough? Are you everything we're looking for just because of your appearance? Yes. So often women feel because we've been taught to feel like that and because we're swimming in a culture that values us because of what we look like, less so, but still, still. Very much. Yes. So it means that the size of our lives, meaning how much we allow ourselves to feel and have and how much satisfaction and power and joy we have is directly related to the size of our bodies. So you feel like you can have a bigger life only if you have a smaller body. And that equation is, is just, it's just so damaging. When did you realize that for yourself? Well, I was so obsessed with food starting from very young. I was, uh, probably by the time I was five or six, I started feeling like I was too fat to, in those years, it was chubby. Mm -hmm. and uh, too chubby. By the time I was 11, I was on my first diet, fourth grade. Is that you did that by yourself or did a parent say you're chubby, you lose weight? I know my mom is Greek. Her mom threw her in Weight Watchers when she was like 12. Yeah. So my mother, my mother felt like I was too chubby, told me I was too chubby. I remember the, a defining moment uh, for me was during the summer and the good humor Man, he has an ice cream truck. Oh, you heard the music coming. Yeah. He'd come around twice a day. And so we'd all go running out and get our whatever it was, creamsicles, toasted almond, hot fudge sundae things. And this for the second time that day, I went out with all the other kids and my mother said I couldn't have a second one because I was getting fat. And that was when I was 11. And I started associating then... Uh, being fat with being unlovable. Because I grew up in a very troubled household and one in which I always wanted more of my mother's attention. I mean, some girls want less of their mother's attention. Some girls feel intruded upon by their mothers. I felt like my mother was unavailable and she actually was unavailable. Uh, And so I blamed my weight. I started blaming the size of my body on what I perceived as the lack of love or wanting or cherishing between my mother and me. And that was the beginning 
of the obsession as I knew it. And as I lived with it for many, many years, the equating love and value, I would say value, really my value as a human being with the size of my body, because then it just expanded out to friends and school and boyfriends and how I felt about myself when I stood up in front of my high school class. And it just fanned out and it affected everything. And what were you thinking was the body you needed to have to be loved? Oh, much thinner, whatever it was. There were two girls in school um, whose bodies were thin and I wanted their bodies. I wanted their hair too, but mostly I wanted their bodies. And I think we've all been there. And especially in high school, you see that one girl and you're like, if I could have her body, life would be easy. Life would be great. Yeah. I really believed that if I could have her body, I'd be fine. And if I were thin, everything would be fine. That somehow all the trouble that I was feeling or all the unhappiness or chaos or confusion would go away. I was absolutely convinced it would all disappear. Mm-hmm if I could lose weight and be thin. And I believed that really till I was 28. So it's not, it just exacerbated through the years. Wow. And so did you ever feel like you reached that point of thinness, of desirable appearance, and then had, and then were unhappy or you maybe were happy? What journey did you take yourself with dieting and with your body until you were 28? Very extreme. I just went for the extremes. I was addicted to diet pills for four years, which meant I basically never slept uh, because that's being addicted to amphetamine speed Um, from 15 to 19, moving backwards. uh, When I was in high school, I went on a thousand calorie a day sugar diet. I, there were a couple of weeks I just ate grape nuts, only grape nuts. Then I was on, these were all diets of my own making. I also went on Weight Watchers and Atkins and Stillman's in those years. Uh, that's what they were called. I mean, they're still called Weight Watchers and maybe Atkins. I don't think Dr. Stillman is around anymore. Um, and then I do things like eat one meatball a day with a little Mott's dietetic raspberry applesauce. That was what I would eat. I did the one hot fudge Sunday a day diet. Then when I was in college, I uh, went on a diet for three weeks that was, I called the all brown diet. It was coffee, diet, cream soda, and cigarettes. And did all of these things you were doing to yourself get you to that body you thought was No, ideal? never. Because that's... It's it's a um, a multi layered uh, attitude one has about oneself, but mostly it comes from the inside. So yes, there was objectively the fact that I was over my natural weight, and I, as a high school boyfriend of mine, told me my my body was made of all circles. You know that I was round. Mm-hmm. So there was that. But then there was a lack of value I felt inside myself. You know, I say in Women, Food, and God, when you look at the world through shattered lenses, the world looks shattered. So the lenses that I was wearing to see myself with were shattered. There wasn't a weight I could have gotten to where I would have felt okay. When I, I There was a time for a year and a half I became anorexic. I 
um, whittled myself down to 82 pounds by only eating 150 calories a day and jogging three or four miles a day and fasting at every change of the season. And even then I looked at myself and I saw fat. Everybody around me was quite concerned, but I'd never felt good enough because on the inside, I didn't feel good enough. So Mm -hmm. there was no way that any weight was ever going to make me feel good enough because I kept looking at that weight and at my body through not enough eyes. And then when did the compulsive binge eating start for you? Is this after you had been restricting for so long? Well, I was always a binger. You know, I would go on diets and then, you know, I say, I think it was probably in Breaking Free, I say this, that for every diet, there's an equal and opposite binge. I totally agree. (laughs) Yes. There's just that kind of restriction always leads to all hell breaking loose. Because there's that's sort of the law of the universe. My favorite point you brought up there was if you tell yourself you can't have something, you will want it, even if you don't. And you talk about these cookies you had thought were so, so good because you don't let yourself have them. But really, you have the cookie and you're like, it's not as good as I've been convincing myself it is. No, no, it never is. Because again, it's the internal attitude. When you say to yourself, you can't have it because you're bad. You can't have it because if you had it, you would go careening off the side of the cliff and you'd never stop eating. You can't have it because you lack value. Now, that people probably don't say that, but, you know, if you they do have they're it... They're not saying it, but that's what they, it's happening. Feeling, I for sure. So that's a terrible reason to not eat something. Now, you know, I work with a lot of people who are on restricted food plans, so to speak, diabetics, Um, people with high blood pressure, people with heart issues. And there's a whole lot of foods that their doctors tell them they shouldn't eat, they can't eat. Now, somebody who um, feels really good about themselves and wants to feed their body so that they thrive and they're happy, they're healthy, they're robust, they're strong, can stop eating something for a very positive reason, which is... This will help my body thrive. That's a whole other line. That's not deprivation. For instance, an athlete who might need their body to be a certain way for performance. They need protein at this time, even if it's not what they were craving. Right. So they're eating for something. They're not eating against themselves. And I think there's a big difference there. When you eat for yourself for because you feel good and you or and or you want to feel better but doesn't that get sticky because if I was an I was a college athlete and if I'm telling myself I have to eat these things to perform better and then I I mess up and I have something that wasn't in my plan for the day am and I now shaming myself like I'm not a good enough athlete I don't deserve to win because I couldn't stick to this diet well Um, All along, it's really important to be aware of and disengage from that shaming voice because that shaming voice is there no matter what you weigh and no matter what you eat. And if it doesn't shame you about what you're eating 
and the size of your body, it will shame you about what you're doing and your relationships and the work and when it looks like you've so-called failed or you've been rejected or any of 10,000 reasons. I call that voice the GPS from the twilight zone. That will is not your friend and that will lead you straight to hell. That's the thing about that voice. And we all have one. Developmentally, we had to have one. By the time we were four, we had to learn not to put our hands in fire, not to go running into traffic, not to throw food on the walls, not to go around biting people. I mean, we had to learn to be, you know, to have some kind of manners. But if we still are being run by that voice, and many people are, I would say that's the driving voice for most people. I got to get more. I got to be thinner. I'm not good enough. I haven't accomplished enough yet. Uh, look at what she's done. Look at That's a voice of comparative judgment. That's a voice of shame. That's a voice of guilt. I mean, we're, we're talking, that's a big voice there. Totally. And I think the question everyone has as they hear you say this is, how do I get rid of that shaming voice? You don't get rid of it is number one. Just realize I, 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 this voice got developed. This is part of developmental human behavior. You don't get rid of it. What you do is you learn to, well, first of all, you hear it. And, and the way you know you're under its thumb is when you feel collapsed or you feel paralyzed, you feel really small, you were just skipping along your day and everything was fine, and suddenly you feel one inch tall. And you don't even quite know what happened. What what just happened? It's not like, you know, something, something big could have happened. Like mm-hmm. you could have not gotten a job you really wanted or gotten an email from a friend who was mad at you or felt rejected in some other way. So something big could have happened. But on the other hand, it just could have been a thought that came in. You could have looked at somebody else's Instagram picture and thought, oh my God, I am such a failure. And then suddenly everything you do is wrong. You feel this big. What's the point? I'm a failure. I've never done it right. I'm never going to get it right. It's, it's almost like you've erased yourself from the face of the earth. That's the sign. Now, what happens... I think if, we've all been there. <laughs> I think many of us... I mean, I had to deal with this voice. I just can't tell you how many years I had to work with this voice and not merge with it because most of us merge with this voice. We believe it. We feel it's sort of like a diet voice in the way in the way that oh, well if I don't believe it all hell will break loose you know what what will make me try what will motivate me if I'm not telling myself I'm a failure and I'm not good enough what's gonna get me to create or to do what I love I need I need that or they can't even figure out what they they can't fathom the fact that they do believe in themselves or they do like themselves so the easy thing is just to buy it and support this voice. Right. And join the suffering club because that's the thing. When you join the voice because so many other people have merged with their voices, you're not alone because it's you and your voice. As long as that voice is around inside you, you're not alone because it's a parent voice. It's an adult. It's like a big person and 
talking to a little person. So you're not alone. And then you have all the other people who are emerged with are telling you, oh, I really blew it this weekend. I'm terrible. I did this. I did. And so then you feel like you're part of a tribe because you too feel bad about yourself it's, and they feel bad about it's themselves. It's very hard to be the only positive person in a group of negative minds. Yes, it is because negativity is contagious. It's, it's really true. This is a... Uh, this takes vigilance. And um, the reason it's important is because what's the alternative? Otherwise, you walk around feeling horrible about yourself. One of the best lines you had in Breaking Free was something online, something along the lines of, I want to have a better relationship with food more than I want to eat this thing. Yes. And that stood out to me the most. And so you're 28 now and what happened for you that you realized there is a voice, there's something more going on, and you started curiously exploring that? I hit bottom. And, you know, part of the reason I've written the books I've written is so that other people don't have to go so low because I really went low. After I was anorexic and weighed 82 pounds, and I couldn't stand that deprivation anymore because really what I was eating was like an apple. And a couple of cashews. It's crazy. I skip lunch accidentally and I'm in the worst mood ever. I'm like, I can't imagine what I would be like if I didn't eat for three days. I wouldn't be able to function or communicate with people. I'd be so mean. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I, I wasn't the nicest person. Um, but then I started eating and I didn't stop eating. And I really mean I didn't stop. The only times I stopped was when I was so nauseated, I couldn't continue. And then I would stop eating for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, till the nausea, half an hour, an hour, till the eating, till the nausea subsided, and then I'd start again. And I'd eat, I don't know, 20,000 calories a day. Uh, I don't even know. I don't really, I didn't really count. Sometimes I would write down what I ate. But then what happened is I ended up doubling my weight in two months. I went from 82 pounds to 160 pounds in two months. And it was at that point that I felt like I couldn't live like this anymore. I was 28, had been on either a diet or a binge every minute of the day since I was 11. Consumes your whole life. You can't think about anything but food. And I realized I I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't. The amount of self-hatred that I felt. I felt like I could have ripped myself apart bone by bone. I hated myself when I was gaining that weight. Hated myself. And while you're doing it. In oh the yeah. Act of eating, oh yeah. But I couldn't it. stop. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to 160 pounds, I uh, realized And there were a couple of factors. I had gone back to school to become a doctor, so I was taking pre-med courses that I hadn't taken in college. I hated them. I was terrible at physics. I wasn't great at math. Biology was okay, but I I didn't know what else I was going to do if I didn't be a doctor. So that was the other confusing thing in there. And finally, when I couldn't take it anymore, I realized, okay, I can't live like this anymore. I feel like my life is over. I'm 28. I feel like my life is over. I don't know what I want to do. If it's not be a doctor, I had no idea. And I had just doubled my weight. And I hated myself. So 
I decided it wasn't really a decision so much as that life wasn't worth living and I, and I was going to kill myself. So I went to a bookstore. Um, I was visiting a friend in Mill Valley. I lived in Santa Cruz at the time, and I went to a bookstore, and I started this before the Internet. So I started looking at books about drugs and guns, and, you know, I thought, well, I could always drive myself over the, the cliff. Um, I had lived in Big Sur for a while, and there were a lot of cliffs there. Uh, and then while I was sitting on the floor of the bookstore, I saw a book called Fat is a Feminist Issue by mm-hmm. Susie Orbach. And in that book, she talks about women using food to express something they don't know how to say in any other way. And for the first time in my life, I thought, oh, maybe this whole thing is actually an expression of sanity, not insanity. Mm. Maybe I'm trying to say something through my weight. And food that I feel like I'm not allowed to say any other way. And I thought, okay, I'll give myself three weeks. I will go on this, maybe. I will stop dieting. I will never go on another diet again. I will, she didn't talk about that, but I had decided I I wasn't going back there. I told myself I could eat what I wanted. And I give myself three weeks. And there was nothing to lose because I was already as low as I could go and I was ready to kill myself. So there wasn't more to lose there. And then I felt like when I stopped dieting, first thing that happened was I stopped dieting. I was like, oh, my God, I'm out of prison. I can eat what I want. I felt like I was breaking a 10 one of the Ten Commandments. Right. Because your whole life you're you're dieting and you're being told you have to eat at this time, eat at that time, eat this and don't eat that. I felt liberated. I felt like, oh my God, I can't believe this was available this entire time. So I started eating what I wanted, what my mind wanted. Then it became what my body wanted. I realized what my mind wanted was only sugar. And you're figuring this out all on your own. Someone like me had your book to guide me through this, but you're just curiously listening to your thoughts, thinking, I'm going to give this a shot and see what's here. Yeah. Which is pretty brave. It sounds like you had an instantaneous, I'm going to flip the switch and try something new. Yes. It was an understanding and a willingness to go with that. Would you say that's... Epiphany. Is that rare or is that something you try to spark in the, the women you work with? Is that aha moment? It's both. I feel like in a way that epiphany was a gift so that I could, was given so that I could pass it on. You know, everybody doesn't have to have epiphanies if I've had one. And then I can, I can just deconstruct that Mm -hmm. so that people understand that. So I think that's part of the reason that I was given that if we want to use that language. The other thing is it's possible to have that or, uh, in any moment that somebody understands, wow, this is not working. What I am doing to myself hurts. It is not worth the cost of my life to have thinner thighs. Because even when I have thinner thighs, I don't even think I have thinner thighs because I don't like myself. So I can't see that I have thinner. This is not worth it. No, I'm going to stop this. And, you know, one great thing about the work I do is that because I do it in groups of women, women feel not alone. 
you know, at a workshop and particularly at a retreat where we spend almost a whole week and they realize, oh my God, other people feel the same way. And there's this. (gasps) And I don't know what it is about compulsive eating and binging, but there's a lot of shame tied to it. Especially when I was going through it, I didn't want anyone to know. I said, I got your book and I duct taped the front cover. Because I didn't want I didn't want anyone seeing <laughs> right. that I was reading a book called Breaking Free from Emotional Eating. Right. It was I wasn't there yet. And so there was all this shame tied to it and that fact that I the fact that I couldn't control myself and that I didn't like myself. And one of the my favorite things you wrote in Women, Food and God was women turn to food when they are not hungry because they are hungry for something they can't name. A connection to what is beyond the concerns of daily life something deathless, something sacred, but replacing the hunger for divine connection with double-stuffed Oreos is like giving a glass of sand to a person dying of thirst. It just creates more thirst and panic. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because we're not, you know, the shame, I think, is um, because we don't get it, you know, we're not honoring ourselves in any way. We're not valuing ourselves. And um, that women feel like they have to go underground. Uh, this whole issue about women's bodies is such a big issue. It is. I mean, it's the shame of women feeling like they've been touched and they're not allowed to tell anybody. I mean, you can just see it all the way through. That's starting to change. But it's changing. I mean, it looks like it's changing rapidly, but it's changing slowly. And it's been going on. The change is great. Women feel like they can speak up. Now, the next thing is, you know, feeling like it's okay to... I mean, why did you feel shame about your body? Because we're swimming in this culture that tells you it's not okay. You're supposed to have it together. And at the same time, values, judges, makes comments... Um, you know, everything is resting on the size of your body. It's, it's just mad. It's a mad world in that way. It is. And especially for women, I know men feel this too, but for some reason, our worth as females is just tied to our appearance and we're hoping that changes. But I think regardless of how society changes, it's really about how we change the way we view and talk to ourselves and do that before everyone else has decided to realize it. And right. You, and you preach being, and I quote you, unspeakably kind to yourself. Right. What does it mean to be unspeakably kind? And how could someone get there if they're constantly berating and cutting themselves down? Yeah. Well, it's that disengaging from that voice. And um, there's a whole process that I write about in Women, Food, and God about that. And, and it's, it's, it's a practice. You know, it's really a practice to disengage from that voice because most of us, you know, a lot of times when I'm teaching a workshop, a weekend workshop, I'll have women write down judgments they've made about themselves uh, in the first 15 minutes since they walked in the door. And I'll, I'll ask them to write down 10. Some of them have 100. Just from the first 15 minutes? Just from, I shouldn't have worn these socks. I can't believe my hair looks like this. Why did I say that to the person next to me? How come I didn't wear lipstick today? I'm disgusting. Look at these rings I'm wearing. Oh, I've come to another thing about food and weight. I'm such a failure. Why am I here? I mean, 
some come up with 10, some come up with 100. So that voice is ever present. And I can't stress that enough. So there's that part of you can't be kind to yourself if you're shaming yourself. You can't be kind to yourself if you're judging yourself and relentlessly comparing yourself to somebody else. Kindness doesn't exist. It's a, it's a land, um, a foreign land that doesn't exist when we're, when we're shaming and blaming and degrading ourselves and the size of our bodies and comparing ourselves so that number one is disengaging from that voice and it's possible to do with practice and so the other part of being kind to oneself that's also a practice you know you you don't self-compassion yes and don't you think it's important too that when that voice comes back up, I, when I went to therapy about, I had felt like I had stopped binging and I go to my therapist and I'm like, I ate popcorn last night cause I was stressed and I didn't want it. And she was like, okay, what about rather than I can't believe I binged. I've been doing so good. It's, Hey, I'm a human. I might emotionally eat. This has been really hard for me for a very long time. So I can forgive myself in this moment. How important is that dialogue as we start getting rid of the shaming voice? Remember, you don't get rid of the shaming voice. What happens with the shaming voice is that it carries on. It's like a crazy ant in the attic. (laughs) And where you are is three floors down. So it's just carrying on and it's just going on and on and on. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. Look at Sasha. I should not like her. But you're not listening to it. It's still, it's, it's, you don't ever get rid of a part of yourself really. It's funny how I've heard you say this like three times now, but I, I so badly, I think we so badly want to just be like, how do I get rid of it? Right. What magic pill do I take? What potion do I drink to just get rid of this? Right. But what happens is with that kind of language, you are setting up a war inside yourself. And that's the hard part about wanting to get rid of a part of yourself. You're basically pitting one part of yourself against another part of yourself. And that's a war. Mm -hmm. I mean, any way you put it, that's a fight, that's a battle, that's a war. And it doesn't work. I mean, the most important thing is it doesn't work. But also, it damages you. You you can't get rid of it. And it's a sort of inner violence. How do I get rid of this part of myself? Eh, you don't. And so you allow it to be and you stop listening to it. Because who cares if it's going on and on in the attic if you're three floors down or even one floor down and the door is closed in the attic? Now... And so that's one thing. Wars and battles don't really work so well. You can't end a war with another war. You can't have kindness by trying to get rid of the part of yourself you don't like because that's the opposite of kind. So when you decide to put up this white flag and surrender, there's no war. I just want to be at peace. Let's all work together. Do you think there's a part of that process is accepting Once I do this for a few months and I've been intuitive eating and I've been mindful, my body will just take the shape my creator has destined it to have. Well, I wouldn't put it like that. Because (laughs) I I guess what I'm trying to say is like, 
the body I've had now, I've had for two years and I have not been restricting. I haven't been binging. I've just been eating like I think a healthy human does. Yeah. However, I could still say I would love if my natural body would have just been 10 pounds less than this. <laughs> and obviously I have those thoughts, but I'm like, this is me and I'd rather accept this than be crazy to lose, you know, the five or 10. So don't you think part of it too is accepting, like once you get to your natural state, accepting like, my legs might be a little bit bigger than someone else's, but my waist is smaller because we're just built differently. Yes. Now that's kindness. That's really kindness. Plus, uh, plus, I, I think it takes a while for your body to get to its natural weight, and you have a gorgeous body. <laughs> why would you, why would you want it to change? I mean, if it wants to change. And you find out that something you're eating or a way that you're eating um, isn't making you feel good or spaces you out or depresses you. I stopped eating chocolate. I'm a chocolate aficionado <laughs> and have I ate a I ate a piece of chocolate for decades. And then I started re- and I was I was like, no, I'm eating. I was a chocolate crusader. And I, I remember when you had chocolate chip cookies like every meal for like four days. That was when I first started. But then I carried chocolate around with me for decades. And then I started realizing, and why did I do it? Because I could. And so, and be- also because people associate with me, m- me with, especially if I'm at a party, well, what do you do, Janine? Well, I write books about women and their relationship with food, and everybody just walks to the other side of the room, (laughs) don't want to have anything to do with me. And then I whip out my chocolate, and it's like, oh, well, whatever ideas they had. But I love chocolate. Then I found out by really paying attention to my body that I started realizing I was a little spaced out after I ate chocolate, that it would just zap my energy. And I was quite disappointed. And so I had to find this out for sure for weeks. It was, well, <laughs> this can't be true. I, th- this can't be true. <laughs> I couldn't have been so mistaken all these decades. Could I really be spaced out when I eat? And then it was true. And then it was a choice to make. Okay, would I rather have 30 seconds of this piece of chocolate melting in my mouth or would I rather feel really well? And it was that I wanted to feel, I didn't want to feel spaced out. And when you bring up chocolate, I think people think of that as a junky food or not healthy. And something that's helped me is detaching from those labels of food and just viewing it all as different forms of nutrients, depending on what I'm feeling and craving. Yeah. Would you agree that it's healthy to get rid of that these foods are in a negative category. And if you eat these, you should feel guilty. And if you eat like an apple and a salad, then you should feel good about yourself. Cause I intuitively eat and I, and I crave salad sometimes and I crave vegetables, but I also crave flaming hot cheetahs <laughs> and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what I think about that. And I haven't really written about this yet, but I'll say it. I will. Um, You've heard it here first. On you, have, Real Pod. you have absolutely <laughs> heard it here first. I think there are different stages that we go through with our bodies and with eating. And the first stage is when we're just kids, when we're really, really young, before we've eaten sugar, before we've like fallen in love with what's sweet, um, 
our bodies naturally just want what they want. Some people, some kids, I have a friend whose kid just wanted broccoli. That's all. He would eat broccoli. And then another friend who wanted, her kid wanted cheese, and I can't remember the other thing. So for a while, for a little while, before we've become inundated and entranced and hypnotized by the culture, our bodies naturally gravitate to foods that make us feel good, what we want. Then the next stage is we're put on food programs we're put, and we're put on diets. We're told, or, eat this, this, this. And Go don't eat this, small this. to big. That's right. Don't eat this, don't mm-hmm. eat that. And so in comes the claws of the dieting and binging culture. And our relationship with food becomes conditioned then according to what we think we should eat and according to what we think we shouldn't eat. It shoulds and shouldn'ts. And it remains that way. For me, it remained that way until I was 28. When I was 28, this is the third stage now. So the second stage is that diet binge. Mm -hmm. You should, you shouldn't, you're good, you're bad, this is right, this is wrong. The The third stage is forget that, rebelling against that. I'm going to eat what my body wants, or actually it starts with what my mind wants. No matter what, I'm going to not think about anything to do with what's in it. If I want raw chocolate chip cookie batter dough balls, which is what I ate. For breakfast. Well, I (laughs) ate that for two weeks straight when I gave up dieting and when I was breaking free, so to speak. Um, I didn't think about nutrition. Then I went into a pumpkin ice cream cone every single day for lunch. I had that for quite a long time. I went through periods of, and a lot of that, and I would say the chocolate came from that too, was because I had been told what to eat for so long that I was determined that I was going to break out of the whole thing. And I stayed in that phase for quite a long time. Did I lose weight? Yeah. I lost weight from the high of 160 pounds. I threw out my scale, so I don't know what I did weigh. But I haven't weighed myself in years. Yeah. That's just, why give the machine the power? That's right. That was the third stage, and I would say I stayed in that for a while. And then, at some point, I realized I could probably feel better than I do. You know, it's one thing when you're young and in your in your teens and 20s and 30s, as you get older, then you realize, okay, well, I got to take really good care of this body. Now, what does this body actually want to eat? What would help this body? That's where the chocolate, not eating chocolate, came in. Mm-hmm. I realized, oh, I could feel better than I do. So I stopped eating chocolate. And I haven't had chocolate for a while now. And I don't feel at all deprived. If I felt deprived, I'd eat a piece. But I don't feel deprived because I'm eating for something, not against something. And because you know that you can have it, you just choose not to. As opposed to saying, I cannot have this. And so the fourth stage is that there's an adult home. And it's not the, I can't, I can't, it's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong, I should, I shouldn't. That's still, in many ways, an adult and a child stage. That's still um, right, wrong, good, bad, should, shouldn't. At the fourth stage, it's, okay, all right, I've been through these stages. I know I can eat chocolate. I know I can have an ice cream sundae if I want that for lunch. I know I can eat anything I want. I know I could eat cheesecake for two weeks straight if I wanted to. What do I want? 
What's going to help me feel fabulous? And so you choose what helps you feel fabulous. And there's no deprivation there. A lot of times I go someplace and I'm not eating what most people are eating. Or I'm not eating because I'm not hungry. And I feel no pressure to eat because they're eating. And I feel no pressure to eat what they're eating because I don't want to eat what they're eating. I want to eat something, and if it doesn't look good to me, or if I know if I eat that, I'm going to feel terrible. I just don't eat it, but it's not a problem. And because it's not a problem for me, it's not a problem for them. But the kindness part, which we never quite got to, is that these things take practice. That's all I want to say. You don't change unless you change. You don't change unless you actually do something differently. It doesn't descend on you. It's not like I had an epiphany sitting on the book, the, the floor of that bookstore and suddenly my life changed. The epiphany wasn't enough. If I didn't actually do it, if, a lot of times people come to my workshops and because I've been doing this for a very long time, I see a lot of people who cycle through. So they saw me five years ago and now they're coming back. Why? Because they heard what I had to say. They thought, okay, let me go on a diet, lose weight, and then I can do what you're, do- what you're talking about mm-hmm. to me. And then they come back five years later, having gained 30 pounds. Okay, now I'm ready to do it. And so there's that. There's also an inner readiness that happens. But you have to do something differently. There is a fear of acceptance. Like I know people in my life who say, I want to go get this thing done or buy this dress, but first let me lose 15 pounds. And I think to do and practice your philosophy and really embrace what you're preaching is to just accept yourself as you are right now and begin now. And don't try to earn or be worthy enough to start. Well, you can try You can try to earn it. You can try to be worthy. And, you know, people will not stop trying until they see that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I, I must know three dozen people who have said to me, let me lose weight first. I have a wedding to go to. I have a party to go to. I have a family reunion to go to. Let me lose this 15 pounds, get into this dress, and then da 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 And so... If they manage to lose the weight, they've lost the weight for five minutes. And then it's just back to the same thing because something on the inside has to change. Just because your body has changed, it doesn't mean that anything's changed. What's the best way someone can figure out what that emptiness is inside of them that they're trying to fix, that void they're trying to fill? How could someone figure out what that is if maybe they don't have the access to therapy or someone else, journaling, um, any questions they could ask themselves? What advice would you give to that person that wants to figure out what they're really seeking? Journaling is great. Getting support is really good. Finding at least one other person, a friend, who wants the same thing you want and doing it together is good. I think that it's very good to know you're not alone. I happen to do this by myself, but um, if I could have found somebody who would have done it with me, I absolutely would have done it with somebody. You know, I have an online course that I recommend people do together. They listen to it together. They do the the work each week together. 
because it's wonderful to have a friend and to not feel alone. And it's not that hard to do this, but it just takes some kind of commitment to do it. So if you're feeling an emptiness inside yourself, if you're feeling like, I don't know why I eat, well, you'll soon find out why you eat when you decide not to eat when you're not hungry. Because then all the reasons, you know, I say to people who come to my retreats, I get it. You're coming because you want to work on this. But as soon as you stop using food, what you haven't felt comes up. Because if you've been using food to stuff it down and you stop using food to do it, then there it is. It hasn't gone anywhere. And you have to deal with it. And that's hard to do. Well, you don't have to deal with it. But you, because nobody, you don't have to deal with anything if you don't want to. A lot of people don't deal with it. They just go on another diet and they distract themselves or they look on their Instagram account or, you know, they go to Facebook. There are, there are 10,000 ways to distract yourself from dealing with it. But if you want to get to that place, to get to those stages you're talking about, you are going to have to, do you think go there well, emotionally? I think it's about meeting yourself, you know? So what you're talking about dealing with it, um, and that, I guess the, the reason I'm responding the way I am to dealing with it, because that sounds uh, like, oh, something I really have to do now, and this is going to be hard, mm-hmm. you know, to deal with it. Yeah. And um, what I would say is, yeah, it's going to come up. The reasons that if I decide not to eat when I'm not hungry because I feel lonely or angry or not enough of everything I'd like to be enough of and I don't eat, up is going to come something that I ate to push down. So then my choice is, okay, what do I do about this? Now, people are often scared about that. They're, they're scared, uh-oh, I don't want to have to, I don't want to go there, what if it's too much, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. And that's why it's helpful to have a friend, a therapist, um, a workbook, something like that, and then realize that feelings are just feelings. They're just feelings. They come and they go. Remember what you thought was so important last week? Probably most of... Most of anybody listening to this, I can't even remember what I was so up in arms about last week and I thought was so important. I can't even remember what it was because it passes. That's the nature of feelings. They come and they go and they don't kill us. It's what we tell ourselves about the feelings that's so harmful. This will never end. It means I'm a terrible person. If I, if I really let myself feel like this, it will destroy me. I'll never be able to get off the bed. And usually what happens is, even if you cry about something, you cry, and then you stop. And then you decide you want to get up and go outside, or you're hungry and you want something to eat, or you want to call a friend, or pet your dog, or, you know, it's over. So we this too shall pass. Yes, and we're not aware of that. We think it's going to last forever. We don't want it to come up because we think it's we think it's going to destroy us. There's also a way vis-a-vis kindness where a feeling comes up, and what I really tell my students is, we practice what we call the oh sweetheart practice, which is 
a feeling comes up, there's sadness. And you feel that you feel it's like, uh oh, there's sadness. I don't want to feel the feeling. As if there's somebody, if you were an adult and there was a kid crying on the side of the road who was sad, would you kick that kid? Would you tell the kid to go away? Or would you say, oh, sweetheart, come over here. Tell me all about it. What's going on? All any feeling wants is to be listened to. And most of us, most of the time, want it to go away. Now, this isn't a convenient time. I don't want to feel sad now. Or I'm afraid of feeling sad now. Or if I let myself feel sad now, I'll never stop feeling sad. How many of us turn towards instead of away from, towards the feeling and say, tell me all about it. Hmm. What's going on? I love that analogy. Yeah, it just unwinds itself. It's like, ah. Uh, So if the feeling could talk at that point, it would say, oh, finally, somebody's listening to me. That's all I ever wanted was to be listened to. Wow. You're absolutely incredible. This has been an insane experience. I would never have imagined I'd have the honor of being in your presence, let alone getting to interview you and pick your brain about all of this stuff. So thank you so much. I want you to know that you've changed my life and I don't know where I'd be without your, your writings and your books. So thank you so much. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Janine, thank you. I've loved it too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Seriously, I wish we could have another hour of conversation with Janine Roth because she's so brilliant and has so much to say and I learned so much from her. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and that there are some takeaways or some things that you're thinking about and exploring curiously in your own lives now. I'll just say from personal experience, the journey with food and self-love and image is not easy at all, but I hope that maybe today from listening to this podcast, you're feeling courageous enough to make that change or seek that help or try something new and know that you're not alone and also this does not have to be forever. I also highly recommend reading one of Janine Roth's books. The book I referred to that changed my life is called Breaking Free from Emotional Eating. Her other book, Women, Food, and God that I read, I also absolutely loved. It has an all-encompassing approach to our relationship with food. Once again, Breaking Free from Emotional Eating and Women, Food, and God are two of Janine Roth's books. I highly recommend. There are also eight other books you could choose from. Not to mention, if you want to work with her and are like, I really need to be in person with someone to help me, Janine is offering a fall workshop that you can sign up for if you go to the JanineRoth.com website. And also, Janine has online courses you can use to help you during your everyday life. Those are at JanineRoth.com slash online hyphen courses. Once again, I am wishing you guys the best of luck on your journey. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I will be back next Tuesday. Make sure you're following hashtag RealPod on Instagram. It's RealPod. And also subscribe to this podcast and give it five stars and a rating if you feel like you love it that much. Thanks again for listening. And I will see you guys next Tuesday. 